All right, let's turn to Esther chapter 5. As I was initially uh, working on this <clears throat> on Tuesday, I thought, boy, maybe I should have divided these and this into two sermons. How in the world do these fit together? But, ha <laughs> they do. So, uh, let's pray this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom." And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is, uh, sorry, even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which, which, with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Jeresh and all the friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. Father, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Bowing before you in reverence opens to us the door of wisdom which results in obedience, joy, and delight. So grant us this great gift this morning. 
humble our hearts before your word so that we might receive it as your word, not simply as the word of men or women. Help us to understand your word. Shape our lives by your word as you also renew our minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We had a wedding yesterday and a reception. And so I'm greatly tempted to talk about my wedding reception, but I won't. I will resist. But I will bring up, and you know, I, I came into this new family that had a history, right? And so you know, I became a new part of that history. And for years, I had heard about the old um, eight millimeter video uh, tape that they had recounting their history. And almost always, what I heard about was an episode with one of her brothers where it was. Gimme Coke, gimme Coke, gimme Coke. And they all acted like it was the funniest thing that they had ever heard of. Well, for her parents' 50th anniversary, one of the gifts we gave to them was we took those old movies and had them put on DVD. And then for our um, farm fest, we, which had not just the family, but we had lots of extended family and uh, friends from the church that they, you know, that her parents had helped found and the kids grew up in. Everyone's up at the farm for the 50th anniversary and we showed the videos. And for the first time, I saw Gibby Coke. And I said, that's it? This is what I've heard about for all these years of our, of our marriage? That? It was very anticlimactic, to say the least. I did not find it as nearly as funny as the rest of them found it to be. This chapter seems to be, when we read it, anticlimactic. You're sort of built up with the anticipation from the end of chapter 4 that it's very possible that Esther is going to her death and... This happens. And, you, and there's, a ten, there's a temptation for us to perhaps be let down a little bit and miss what's really going on in this text. Part of what's going on in this text, I think, is the contrast between Esther and Haman, which is really a contrast between humility and wisdom on one hand, and pride and foolishness on the other. The big idea this morning is that Jesus humbled Himself to give us wisdom. So let's start with Esther for a moment. That wisdom, in, sorry, humility and wisdom risk self to save others. Okay, um, let's remember that the first time that Esther had met the king, that she had been on a 12-month beauty plan in order for a one-night engagement with the king that could turn into a life as his queen. And so there was a lot of pressure then, but there was this whole build-up to it as she underwent the beauty treatments 
and they fed her all of the rich food because, uh, you know, at that point in time, it wasn't like today where we like our models very thin, okay? She was not intended to be thin. This was not a diet that she was on to lose weight. So 12 months. This time, we see that Esther has been fasting, not gaining weight, but losing weight for three days. And she's doing this because she faces the potential of death, not just to become, you know, in a role as queen, but for Israel. She's not presenting herself to the king just for her own benefit here. She is presenting herself to the king for the benefit of the entire nation. And so as we saw at the end of last week, they have been, she has been fasting and asking all of the people, all of the Jews in Susa to also fast and implicitly to pray. She's been expressing a sense of humility and dependence upon God in preparation for appearing before a very impulsive, unpredictable king, unbidden. And remember, the law of the land was that if you showed up before the king without being summoned, the penalty was death. You were guilty until proven innocent in this case because the king could recognize you. Remember the danger that's presented there, as as Esther mentioned to Mordecai, it's been 30 days since the king has summoned me, so she wasn't sure of the reception she was going to receive when she showed up in the inner court. It was dangerous. Archaeological discoveries have reliefs of the throne room of the the, uh, Persian kings, and by the throne are two men with rather large battle axes, ready to defend the king and also ready to defend any who dared show up without being summoned. So, dangerous is the task that she has chosen for herself in this And yet she stands, I think, in contrast with Vashti. Vashti, of course, whose name means beautiful, but uh, perhaps one lacking discretion. She didn't recognize that she was dealing with an impulsive fool. She was impulsive herself and lacked wisdom. Because while she was right, in that she should not be displayed before the king's friends for their amusement... She was wrong in how she approached the king. In other words, there were other options available to her that she didn't make use of. But Esther is a lot like Abigail. She recognizes that she is married to a harsh and unpredictable man. In Abigail's case, it was Nabal, whose name appropriately was Fool. She knew she was married to a fool, and so she acted like she, like she was. And so here we see that Esther knows she's married to an arrogant fool and acts with wisdom and humility. Instead of donning a sexy dress this time, she dons her royal garments. And what's interesting about this is 
Um, within these first few verses, there's a drum beat that hits, royal, royal, royal. All the different variations of the word uh, malek, or king, are found in this. The feminine form for hers, her robes, for instance. She's in a different place. She's not just a Jewish woman. She's now entering into the place where royalty is everything and shapes everything. She's walking into a fundamentally different world than the one that she was brought up in. And it's a world that is fraught with danger. She goes into the inner court, or what we would call perhaps the lobby, and you can, you know, from the throne, you can just sort of see, and so she positions herself with wearing her royal robes so that she can be seen by Xerxes. And there is a moment of anticipation as terms of what will happen. Xerxes does extend the scepter, which was his symbol, a symbolic gesture that she was welcome to come into the presence of the king. Last night, during the uh, the wedding reception, some of you who were there, there was the photo thing. You know, they had all the props and stuff, and uh, I decided I wanted pictures with Amy, and um, but she chose the props for some reason. It was the crowns, and so I had a scepter, and so I made like I was Xerxes, <laughs> extending my scepter to show my acceptance of my Esther, okay? That's what happens here. Once again, Esther finds favor with Xerxes. Now, this is where it gets anticlimactic. He tells her, what do you want? Anything up to half the kingdom, which was you know, more of a, formula, a formulaic saying. Okay? It, it was meant to sort of be the typical Persian court um, extravagance. Okay? Half the kingdom for you. And you might think that she's going to go for the jugular and plead the case of Israel and she doesn't. That's what I mean by anticlimactic. You think this is sort of the, the hinge upon everything's going to hang on this thing, and instead of asking him for the life of her people and herself, what she does is say, will you and Haman come to a feast? We're supposed to go, what? That's your plan? To have a feast? This doesn't seem to be what you should be asking for, but rather than getting directly to the point, she has identified the weaknesses of these two men, and she, I believe, is maneuvering them into a position where it is to her advantage. She is going to take advantage of Xerxes' weakness as well as expose Haman for what he is. I'm reminded of a couple of passages in the Proverbs. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. 
And then in Proverbs 19, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. And so she is like a servant who is dealing wisely for his favor, and she is experiencing this dew that's on the grass because of her her wisdom in approaching this. And so we think that it's during the feast that she has prepared that all of this is going to come out. And once again, we see um, <clears throat> the king is rather joyous. The king has been drinking, and we'll get to that again in a few moments. Um, but he again repeats his, his offer. What's your request? Up to half of the kingdom, it's yours. Because I love you so, honey. Um, I haven't seen you in 30 days, but I love you. Um, And you think that, again, this is the moment. And it's not. But notice there are some slight variations between what she says in the throne room and what she says here at the feast. She has gotten an implicit yes to the answer. For she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, come to the feast. And so the, the, his merely showing up to the feast indicates that he is implicitly agreeing to grant her request. You catch that? It's subtle. Some might say sneaky. I won't say that. But I think it's wise. Esther is laying a trap. And these men are just walking right into it. She has gained Xerxes and Haman's favor because she has previously won the favor of God by faith. She's like Joseph. What do you see in in the story of Joseph? The Lord was with Joseph, and therefore he found favor in the sight of fill-in-the-blank. His master. the, The captain of the prison. Pharaoh himself. And so because the Lord was with Joseph, he continued to find the favor he needed so that Joseph would be the one that would actually deliver Israel from the famine that was going to destroy much of that part of the world. And so we see Esther here continuing to find favor so that she can be the one who is going from a earthly perspective, a human perspective, to deliver Israel from the destruction that is coming. We see that in a sense she is like Moses. When I read the account in Exodus, which is why we had it this morning, I'm like, how did Moses get to see Pharaoh. The last time he'd been in Egypt, he had been exposed as a murderer and therefore was under the death penalty. How does he just show up after 40 years in the wilderness and get to hang 
with the Pharaoh. God, once again, opened the door because he had favor upon Moses. Therefore, Moses found some measure of favor before Pharaoh. As we think about her, let us remember that she stands before an unbelieving king who is over an unbelieving kingdom or empire. And so as a result, she was wise and winsome in how she approached this king. She could have burst in like Vashti might have and just declared, why are you having me killed? But she didn't. She's not antagonistic as we might be tempted to be, but we see the subtlety of her plan. And as we deal with unbelievers, I think this reminds us that we probably need to be far more winsome than we are. Now, some of you might go, hey, wait a minute, what about Elijah? I thought about Elijah. Elijah was anything but winsome. He was blunt. But who was he speaking to? He was speaking to a king who was over a nation in covenant with God. He was speaking to Ahab, the king of Israel, or Ephraim, Samaria. And so he was speaking to someone who was breaking the Mosaic covenant, and so his approach was very different. He could be blunt, but I think the approach that Esther takes is more in keeping with approaching an unbelieving form of authority with the subtlety, the winsomeness. And so I think context matters when we approach authority over injustice. So we see here that faith and wisdom go hand in hand as she seeks to save not only herself, but all of Israel from Haman's plot. Let's turn now from Esther and her wisdom and humility to Haman. Foolishness and pride destroy others to save self. And so once again, we see that Xerxes and Haman are like two peas in a pod. They are both arrogant and they are both appetite-driven. You'll notice that at the mention of a feast, what does he do? Xerxes stops all the business and says, get Haman, we're going. Okay, It's not the end of the day, because later on we see that on Haman's way home, Mordecai is still working. So this is the, this is, you know, the, the, um, lengthy lunch that's transpiring here. Okay? Not dinner time. These two men are fools. Displayed in, in how they respond to all of this. Uh, their rush to have their appetites satisfied as well as um, the decisions that they make in all of this, what's, 
One of the interesting things, if we go back and remember chapter 1, after Vashti's um, disobedience of the king's command, there was the great edict. And the great edict indicated that men were to be in control of their own households. Who's really in control here? Esther. She's the one who's really exerting control over what's happening in this portion of the story and therefore in the household of Xerxes. He is just strung along as a man following his appetites. The two of them have been drinking together again when he asks her, probably in a rather joyful, quote-unquote, frame of mind, for her petition. He is ruling while intoxicated, most likely. As someone who um, unfortunately drank too much before he was a Christian, I know the danger of ruling while intoxicated. One tends to make um, outlandish statements and remarks that gets one in trouble. One can... um, not drive in a straight line, much less walk in one. And so he's, he's dancing with danger here. He doesn't recognize his vulnerability even as he makes this promise and then makes this subsequent decision to return tomorrow for more good food and more wine to follow his appetites. We see the foolishness of Haman begin to emerge as well because he leaves this party joyful and glad of heart because of the wine, but also because of the privilege that he has. But all of this joy is destroyed in a heartbeat because there is Mordecai. And Mordecai is just sitting there He's not bowing down and paying homage like he's supposed to. He's not trembling. Doesn't this man know? Hasn't he read the edict that I'm coming for his head and he's not going to growl? He's still not going to grovel before me? Haman amazingly controls his anger such that he doesn't lose it because he's really, one of his big problems is the fear of man. He's concerned what other people think. And so, on the one hand, he's incensed that Haman won't bow down to him, but he doesn't want everyone else to see that he's such a loser. So he restrains his anger until he gets home with his wife, uh, Zeresh, and he's, and he's got his friends and advisors who are there. And it's very interesting what takes place. He begins to recount... His greatness. Now, who is he talking to? This is not someone that he met at a restaurant or a party or, you know, I met a guy at the uh, reception yesterday and he kept wanting to show me pictures of his car. Okay? I, I immediately discovered what was important to him. These were his friends. These were his advisors. This is his wife. They know all about him, but he continues to go... All my wealth, the glory of my wealth. 
How many sons I have? They know how many sons you have. But he's boasting in how many sons he has. He's boasting in the promotions he has received. He's promotion, uh, he's boasting, you know, in the fact that he has been elevated above all the other officials, that he is the second most powerful man in all of Persia, and he's boasting that he alone has gone to have lunch with Vashti, not Vashti, Esther. Doesn't want to have lunch with Vashti. She's banished somewhere if she's still alive. Okay? So he doesn't want to do that. He's boasting. And yet, he says, I can't enjoy any of this because of that guy Mordecai. Imagine how small of a man he is that he can have all of these great things and because one official under him won't bow down, his day is ruined. And the next day is ruined. He acts like his whole life is ruined because of Mordecai, the Jew. He's a small man, a weak man, a foolish man, an arrogant man. This is over an insult. He can barely control himself after this insult, whereas Esther was able to control herself, though she's under the death sentence. We see in all of this that Haman is a lot like Xerxes because now he has advisors to tell him what to do, and the primary advisor is his wife. Once again, the edict of Xerxes comes to mind. Haman's not in control of his house. Zeresh is in control of his house. And in some ways, this is uh, reminiscent of <clears throat> one of the lowlights in Abraham's life where uh, he listened to Sarai before her name was changed to Sarah and decided to take Haggai in order to produce an heir. Not the best moment for either Sarah nor Abram that we see in Genesis 16. And so we see that a, the plot is concocted such that they don't wait for the appointed day of destruction for the Jews, but for Mordecai, tomorrow is the day of judgment. They've decided that they will have, that Haman will build a 75 foot spike. Now, the palace was about 45 feet tall, so this is something that's going to be seen from everywhere in the city. And Mordecai is intended to be impaled upon this 75-foot pole the next day. So that then he can go and enjoy his lunch with Esther and the king. Okay, In other words, he doesn't just want to see Mordecai humbled. He wants to see Mordecai humiliated and Mordecai destroyed. He wants to rescue his wounded ego, not just by destroying Mordecai, but also by, by, by destroying all of the Jews. 
In some ways, he's like the thug who was worried about whether someone disrespects him because that's all this is about. He didn't get the respect from Mordecai that he thought he deserved. And so we're reminded because of his pride, as we see in Proverbs and James 4 and 1 Peter 5, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we see in all of this that God has been giving grace to Esther, and now we're going to see how God is going to oppose Haman in the days to come. This is revealed in the fact that proud people are never satisfied. Proud people are never content. Proud people are never at peace. And that is because God is opposing them. So they will not get that which they seek. And so foolish and arrogant people won't be satisfied until everyone does their will or dies. So what are we to do with this? We are to look to the humble and wise one who gave himself for us. We've been talking a lot about the reality of typology as we've been going through Esther and how um, largely Esther points us to one who is greater than herself, Jesus. Okay, And that what she does reveals to us something of what Jesus does, although he does it in greater measure and with greater significance and importance. But we see that Esther stood in the place of those who were facing death but had no access to the king. They had no political power. There was nothing they could do, and she stands for them as their representative. This points us to Jesus, who while we were weak or helpless, while we had no access to the Father because of our sin, who when we were ungodly, when we were God's enemies, loved us and gave Himself for us in order to bring us into God's presence. We see that on the third day of fasting, she went and put on her royal robes. We recognize that on the third day after his death, Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended to his seat at the right hand of the Father in order to exercise power on our behalf. Esther appears before a foolish and impulsive king while Jesus appears before the holy and righteous king who had a legitimate grievance against us. And so while the axe did not fall on Esther, it did fall on Jesus because He came to bear our sin. And so as a result of that, we can think of things like what we find in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And so we see that Jesus is our advocate or our counsel 
before the Father, so that we have gone astray, He still pleads His blood for our pardon. And go astray, we still do. But Jesus stands there ready to plead for our forgiveness because of the complete work of His death upon the cross. But not only that, but Hebrews 7.25 reminds us He's able to save us to the uttermost because He lives forever to intercede for us. So He's not just our lawyer or advocate, but He's also praying for His people in His heavenly ministry. Jesus remains at the Father's right hand in order to plead for His people. He intercedes for us. And so He's both our advocate and our intercessor before the Father so that we receive all of the benefits that He has won for us. And so when we come into the presence of the Father in prayer, We come clothed in Christ. We do not come clothed as commoners, but we are welcomed by the Father as if we were His own Son. That's the access that we have. And so we're able to come before the Father and we're able to make our requests known. I was listening to a bit of a sports podcast and this week, and it was interesting because of the memorial service for Arnold Palmer, those of you, the, the great golfer who passed away last week. His grandson was telling a story as part of the eulogy, and he said that he had called his grandfather And his his grandfather, Arnold, uh, answered. And his his grandfather goes, where are you? He goes, I'm at home. Why? Where are you? And he goes, I'm with the president. The president of what? I'm with the president of the United States. I'm in the Oval Office. And his grandson Why did you answer your phone? Because I wanted to talk to you. The relationship he had with his grandson was sufficient that even the president could be put on hold, so to speak, so that he could talk to his grandson. When we pray because... He is our Heavenly Father. Whatever else He's doing, so to speak, if this is very human because He's omnipotent and omnipresent and all of the infinity things, so He doesn't have to stop doing anything like the President might or like Arnold Palmer Palmer might, but He pays full attention to the prayers of His people because He loves them and wants to hear their voice. What a great privilege we have in prayer. It is not a servant to a king. It is a child to a father. And while I do not grant my children's every request, I still like to hear their voice. So Eli, 
keep asking. You didn't hear me, did you? No. No. Leave that alone, son. All right. We come clothed in Him. And so it's sort of like Isaiah. Isaiah initially came with an unclean mouth, but he was cleansed by the hot coal and therefore was able to speak before God and men. Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah had his unclean clothes replaced with the clean clothes so he could serve before God. And so we have been cleansed so we can come into the presence of God and we can serve Him. And so we see that in addition to that, the humble one who pardoned you also makes you humble through His grace and circumstances. We are being conformed to the likeness of Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. And one of those things is humility. And Paul expounds on that in the first half of Philippians chapter 2. For instance, he says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And then he continues to say, have this same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. And so his whole rationale for our humility is the humility of Jesus, who did not cling to his rights, but became as not just a man, but a slave, and was obedient even to death, death on a cross. And God the Father exalted Him, and everyone shall bow before Him and say, Jesus is Lord at the appointed time. We are to walk in the same fashion. We are to have the same mindset. And that only comes when we are united to Christ and He continues to make us like He is. But we also see that Jesus is the wise one. He is our wisdom that we receive that when, when we're united to Him by the Spirit in, in Colossians, 1 Corinthians 1. And because of Him, meaning God the Father, you are in or united to Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He is our wisdom. So we receive wisdom through our union with Jesus Christ. That wisdom comes by the Spirit, but it largely comes through the Word. As we read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom of God by giving us understanding of the Scriptures. If we're not in the Scriptures, we're not going to be very wise. But we'll be fools like Haman. All right. The contrast between wisdom and folly, humility and pride, seems rather anticlimactic, sort of like gimme coke, gimme coke, gimme coke. Was to me anyway, not to my wife. She still finds joy in it. But it made all the difference in whether Esther and therefore Israel lived or died. It points us to Jesus, the greater Esther, who would, who would in fact die so that we can live because He also lives forever to intercede for us.
This means that we can be humble instead of demanding in our dealings with the Father as we make our requests known. We can also be humble and wise in dealing with earthly authority because we see a bigger picture. And so we become less concerned with self and more concerned with others, freeing us to be winsome rather than brash. Let's pray. Father, uh, a lot for us to chew on, even though it looks like it's not an incredibly deep passage. And yet, there is much more than meets the eye. So, Father, help us to process this. Give us wisdom through these particular scriptures. Help us to see our incredible need for Christ, which continues even after conversion. Help us to continue to cry out that He would indeed make us more humble, more wise, as He continues to make us more like Himself. Give us a greater desire to be more like Jesus. And in particular, in these ways. Because, Father, we too deal with an unbelieving world. And we are so tempted to act like Haman. We are so tempted to want to defend ourselves. And our rights. Even if it means the destruction of others. So help us instead to um, lay these things down and to pick up wisdom so that we can see others saved by the redeeming work of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.